We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, our host Sam Bostead is interviewing architects Craig Heyman and Hannah Charlton from Heyman Charlton Architects. Craig and Hannah discuss designing and building sustainable off-grid eco-tourism lodges in wild Africa. They discuss spending a lot of time connecting to site, sustainable design and building in the bush, and what these projects have taught them for their future projects. Let's jump in. I wish to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we live and work and pay tribute to elders past, present and emerging. Hi, my name's Sam and I'm here to introduce two amazing architects and two very good old friends of mine from Heyman Charlton Architects. Hi guys. Hi. Hi Sam. So we have Hannah Charlton and Craig Heyman here and I'm going to introduce them a little bit and then we'll have a discussion about their work. Hannah Charlton and Craig Heyman are partners at Heyman Charlton Architects and are also husband and wife. They established their firm during the pandemic and are based out of Tugan on the Gold Coast, having lived and worked previously in Sydney and Cape Town in South Africa. Craig is originally South African and holds two degrees in architecture from the Uni of Cape Town, as well as a Master of Architectural Science in Sustainable Design and Building Services from Sydney Uni. Hannah's a born and bred Queenslander, that's how I know her, and holds a Bachelor of Architectural Design from UQ and a Master of Architecture from Sydney Uni. The work at present is a combination of high-end homes and ecotourism lodges, which have become something of a specialisation for their firm. Craig has a unique skill set that lends itself towards this type of work. After finishing his postgrad studies in Cape Town, Craig spent three years working as a photographic and walking safari guide in various wilderness areas throughout Africa. Living in nature for this period of time allowed him a deep opportunity to learn about this part of the world and an appreciation for the subtleties of pattern, rhythm, light, and the passing of time that are unique to place. As a guide, he worked and lived in a collection of luxury lodges around Africa, where he gained a strong understanding of the guest experience, as well as the back-of-house operation that makes this experience possible. Wow. This sounds pretty cool. So today we're going to be talking about ecotourism projects and in particular safari lodges. Craig, what what is a safari lodge? Hi, Sam. So safari lodges are really luxury boutique hotels in wilderness areas, simplify it. Typically, they are small in the number of guests. They're very expensive to stay in, like between two and $5,000 a night expensive. And they used to be quite sort of rudimentary camps in the bush, uh, just a place to drink a gin and tonic between drives. And uh, now there's a lot of emphasis on design in the last 20 years. And quite a few of the projects are done by really reputable architects. And there's a a few things people want when they go on safari, mostly is to see animals and experience nature. But a lot more of the focus now has been on uh, on the whole experience. And then in the last probably two decades, a lot more of the importance has also been placed on the ethics of what you're doing as a visitor. And being a guide was definitely helpful for me understanding all sides of the process. My, my dad was a, is a retired architect, and so he's done some lodges as well. So I sort of had a, a background of what it was like in the old days. It's certainly different now. And then Hannah, being an Australian, came across and lived in Cape Town for four years. 
together with me and we managed to, she certainly had an experience of the, the best of the best working on Kidra full-time. So I think she's got an interesting outsider's view on it as well. Yeah, it must be good having the mix, right? The inside and the outside. Can you explain your your path into this and, and how, how you got involved? <laughs> a bit of a cliche. A cute boy said, do you want to move to <laughs> said okay and it was only meant to be six months but I just loved it so much that I refused to come home and in South Africa they traditionally build with masonry which isn't really something I'm familiar with um because over here we build so much in lightweight and then when they were doing the lodge lodges are typically lightweight and so their architectural team was a little bit challenged and Craig said oh well you know my partner she's an Australian she knows how to build with timber and I came on to help them with some timber detailing and it was only meant to be just to get them over the hump but I loved it and I brought that knowledge to the table and so they kept me around for a few years. Yeah, it was a great experience. We sort of lived full-time just working on one project at a time and they'd fly us to site sort of once or twice a month and typically we're there sort of five or seven nights in a row. And so you're really immersed on site working dawn till dusk and the camps are unfenced. There's wildlife everywhere. We had, you know, sort of lions moved into camp for a long period of time because it was the best shade. We had elephants in camp. A, a leopard uh, hid her cubs in an unused air conditioning duct when they were very small for a while. So oh. we just really got used to all sorts of wildlife encounters. And at first, I think Hannah was pretty. I was shocked that there were no fences. And (laughs) And they'd just say, just go and walk over there. It's 200 meters. You'll be by yourself. You'll be fine. Mm. If you see a snake, run fast. Yeah. So, but by the end, Hannah was gung-ho and pretty experienced. And I think, especially as one, you're basically one woman, or there were two women sometimes out of 300 people on staff, but you quickly cracked the whip. And I think everyone listened to you straight away and realized that you really, really knew what you were doing. So that was also quite nice to watch them learned that uh, Hannah was very, very competent and that was quite refreshing. Were there three different projects we'd like to talk about today and they're all different. So the one that Hannah worked on mostly was one called Kijara. Kijara is in the Akabango Delta in Botswana. Uh, We should point out that Hannah and I were the project architects on that full-time for two years, but we worked for Anton de Kock Architects in collaboration with Milan Forster Architects on that project. So we, it's not under our name, it's not under Heyman Charlton, but we, that was our job full-time for two years, which was a great adventure and very good architects we work for. We're very happy with that experience and we still catch up with them when we're back in South Africa. Um, and then the other two projects were done under our name. Tuludi is in the Akavango Delta as well, which is in Botswana. And Impala Jena is on the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. They're quite different in that... Taludi was done on a site that had no buildings on it. In fact, choosing where to put buildings was quite a big part of the initial phase of the project. And it was a brand new site. The Akavango Delta is a floodplain that is really rich in wildlife. It's essentially unchanged from what it would have looked like a thousand years ago. And it's very wild and very pristine. And the client had a real passion for nature, but didn't really have a strong experience in design. Whereas for, uh, and that was the same, same client for Impala Jenna, whereas the client for Kidra was an experienced hotelier and was deeply passionate about art and design, but had no experience of the bush and had mostly their, all their hotels were sort of in cities and metropolitan areas around the world. So very different, very different clients, very different experience, very different briefs. Uh, Impala Jenna and Tuludi were both quite cavalier in their approach to 
to regulations and uh, to the, the design wasn't finessed the way that Kidra was. Kidra was designed to the the highest standard you'd see in Australia, whereas the other two were were a little bit cowboyish, but in a in a charming way and in a way that was ethical, I would say, but certainly a little bit more relaxed about construction detailing. Can you tell me more about, uh, like you mentioned the ethics and obviously you've got different experiences from brief, like how do you like start to understand your brief and then understand the site that you're working with? Like what are the approaches that, that you took to, I guess, start designing um, and setting up that scope? So for Tuluti, it's important to know that in the Akavango Delta, although there are very few rules in terms of what you'd have in like the BCA and the NCC in Australia, there are very, very strict environmental impact regulations and they're very strictly enforced. So Botswana is a very well-run country. It's a very organized country. And the environment and ecotourism is a very big part of their income and employment and the government takes it very seriously. So although you're allowed to build a platform 10 meters in the air with no balustrade, you're not allowed to have any impact on the environment whatsoever. So all of the buildings by necessity are off-grid because they're in the wilderness area very, very far from everything else. So there's no mains electricity, there's no sewage, there's no water. But all of the buildings are stipulated to be entirely demountable. So everything you design has to be removable. You have to have a plan to remove it and you have to be able to rehabilitate the site so that there was no sign of a building ever having been there. (laughs) And you're not allowed to use concrete. You're not allowed to spill any oil in the ground. You're not allowed to... There's all sorts of rules about what you can and can't do to the site in terms of removing trees, termite mounds, things like that. But, But in terms of health and safety, other than fire and environmental impact, it's quite relaxed. I don't know, maybe Hannah, you can reflect on that as an Australian. In the other thing that I don't do a lot of on the Gold Coast is tracking animal paths. So this is where Craig's ranger knowledge came in and we'd work with locals really working out, well, where are these animal paths? Because they're really established and we don't want to ruin them. You know, when the animals come back in the area, if their path to the waterhole is no longer there, it causes problems for them. And then it's also understanding the landscape. So the Okavanga is on a delta and that floods once a year and they're major, major floods. And then another part of the year, you've got major rains. So how are we dealing with the local landscape and the local weather system and how can we design around that? And does it make sense to put a building in this part or is it just going to get flooded and washed away? And then it's also... If we build in this part, can we even get trucks to this part of the site if it's going to be flooded six months of the year? So there's a lot of that that happens really early on. Yeah, the the intention was really to minimize your impact on the wildlife as well during construction and operation. So we had ecologists involved in the projects all the way through and the approach was to be really, really sensitive, which I think luckily almost everyone working out there wants to do that. It's not just a box ticking exercise. People who choose to work out there tend to love the place and appreciate it. So they're not um, not trying to get away with as much as possible. Mostly they're trying to do the right thing, even without the regulations, but the regulations definitely help. Uh, Impala Jenna was a little bit different. That's the one in Zimbabwe on the Zambezi River. There was an existing tented camp on the site and the clients had elected to remove that whole camp and take it to Kenya to set up a different project. And so we had essentially a back of house, so a kitchen, staff villages, solar panels, things like that, and a bridge. And then we built an entirely new lodge on site. But there we had a different set of skills to work with. The locals had 
a really well-developed thatching skill set. The local builders and they had a very good stone and masonry skill set. And there we were allowed to use concrete because we were much closer to um, to the town and it wasn't a flood zone the same way that the Delta was. And so we had a very different approach, um, whereas all of the projects in Botswana were on stilts and the stilts couldn't have concrete footings. And so we had a, a really good engineer, Rob Hart on Kitara, and he designed this very clever footing that could go into soft, soft sand. It's like clean beach sand. And it's like a flexible plate foot that would allow you to, to deal with each footing basically having a slightly different condition. And it allows you to pull that up and just the weight of the soil essentially anchors it. And it's a very lightweight, very crisp system. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum at Taludi, it was all gum poles. So there was no steel at all because the the budget was lower and the skill set of the builders was lower. Not not bad, just it was normal, whereas Kedjura had an exceptionally high-quality building team. And so everything was done in gum poles, which is basically cylindrical timber posts. And they were just dug into the ground and anchored by by soil. Uh, and there's interestingly, there's no rock in the delta at all. There's, you could literally go for 200 kilometers in any direction. There's not a rock. It's all soft sand. And so you've got no rock to work with at all, no, nothing to anchor into. So everything is everything floods. And so you're really limited with where you choose to put your buildings. But it's not a torrential sudden flood like you get in many parts of Australia. It's a gradual trickle that over about eight or 10 weeks rises the water level from about uh, by about two meters, I suppose. And about less than half of the land is available to build on in the dry. In fact, quite a lot less in some areas. It's 80% of the land is lost. It's worth also pointing out that although the environmental footprint of the guests is quite low, we'd like to think in what's built, they're all flying in from Switzerland or New York. (laughs) And typically in business class at least. So they've got a big footprint in their travel but there are very few of them. So part of the reason the lodges are very expensive is because the operating costs of the concessions, in other words, the right to have a lodge in the land is very, very high. The government charges a lot for people to stay there. And so if they're charging $800 a night, the government, to, to have a guest stay there, the lodge can't really charge 1000 a night because they're only making $200 off it. They've got to charge at least 2000 so they can make more money. And so to do that, they've got to justify it by having a more expensive lodge, which means more design, which in one way, it's quite exclusive and alienating. Like most people I know can't afford to stay there. And most people who live in the country can't afford to stay there. But it does mean that the government only allows a very small number of people. I think Saludi had 14 people and Kidra had 24 people, guests. And then their staff to guest ratio might be about three or four to one. So it means an area like Taludi's concession was about the same size as the ACT the land the land and there were no probably no more than 100 people in that whole area so and and there are very few roads no tar roads all the access is mostly by water in the wet season and by a few dirt tracks and timber bridges in the wet season so it's a it seems like a strange it's a strange thing to wrap your head around if you haven't known the safari industry but there's these vast areas of wilderness that can stay wild (laughs) because they're profitable. And so being profitable is essentially the thing that makes the wilderness stay wild. Otherwise it would be cattle farm or corn or villages or something like that. So it's a, it's a strange thing to wrap your head around, but it it does make sense. These very expensive lodges do actually, they're, they're a good alternative to keep the area wild, but it is strange that essentially they build these wonderful things in the middle of nowhere that only Americans can visit. 
and a couple of wealthy people from other parts of the world, but locals don't tend to go to. But it's it's the same in the lodges I worked on. They were they were very expensive, mm. and mm. not many locals could go. But it it is a way to make wilderness stay wild. Yeah, stay wild. And in some cases, even in, especially in South Africa, quite a few areas that were farmland or were hunting have been returned to safari, which means basically returned to full biodiversity because they've become profitable because of these lodges. So anyway, I think that's a long story, but <laughs> I better let you guys ask some questions. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it does make sense. And I think it's on, it is um, important to understand the sort of um, the reason why you're doing something, because that way you can actually you know, respond to your brief basically as an architect. Mm-hmm. I did want to talk a little bit more about design and, and the experience of these lodges. Like you, you've shared some really interesting constraints and how you've responded to them from a technical detail, but what, what, what is it like to, to actually stay in one of these lodges? Um, like maybe you could talk about each project in particular and, and how they're different. Firstly, they're amazing to stay in. If you ever get the opportunity, go, go, go. Might have discount, like. We wish. Uh, firstly, they're, they're extremely high luxury, as Craig said. They're very expensive. So you've got to have that payoff with the luxury. But a big part is how can you connect with the nature while you're there? And while you're connecting with nature, a lot of guests want to feel like they're doing the right thing for the planet. So they want to see what the sustainable things that we've done, like, is there a solar plant there? You know, where is my water coming from? Like, am I dredging up the delta to have a big soapy bubble bath? So they want to know where all of those things are going. If you stay at Kidra, there's even little booklets that you can read about, you know, what happens to your sewage when you're done and all of those sorts of mm. things. Because they, whether or not they actually care about, but they like to know that those things are happening and that they are out in the wild connecting to nature and not mm. impacting too much on the footprint of the earth. And so does that mean, like, does that come out in an aesthetic? Sometimes. So sometimes will actually, when you're driving out of the lodge, you will see where the solar farm is and sometimes mm-hmm. the car will stop and explain and say, here's our solar farm. It's enormous. This is what's powering everything. And then other times it's hidden. Like unless they do offer at Kidra, if you want to go and see the macerator to see what happens to your poo, you can go and do all of that. It doesn't smell. It's very it doesn't nice. Smell. It's amazing. It's cool. actually quite cool. And they've got an amazing water filtration system there. So they show you how to clean your bore water. But I don't think they've ever actually had a guest go and ask to look at it unless it's an architect staying there. Hmm. But we used to, some of the lodges and I've worked at in South Africa, they, they would offer guests to to walk through the staff village and see how everything works. And I think people people really like it. Some people, about 10% mm. of people love it. So to answer your question about what it's like to stay there, Sam, I think the the experience that guests have is something that really brings them close to nature whilst being really comfortable and safe, which is quite a fine line to tread. So for Kitura, the the guests, for example, atypical, they'd be um, the kind of people who maybe want to stay at the most expensive hotels in the world. And this is just included in that experience of really wonderful art-based design hotels in the world and it's got a really great nature experience for example Anna was in charge of the design of a a sleeping platform that's four stories in the bush and it's the middle of nowhere you have to get to it sort of by vehicle or canoe and it's in the shape of a baobab but it's made in weathering steel and it's in the shape of a what a baobab tree but it's um what what kind of shape is that uh, so it's essentially like a 
there are baobabs in Australia. There's one species in South Africa and there's seven species in Western Australia. And they look like they're really swollen and they have very few leaves, but very chunky limbs, like a baby's arm. They're very tall. They can be 20, 30 meters tall. And they're incredibly um, old. Like they love them are years old. two, 3,000 years old. And they're very sculptural, very distinctive. So the platform that Hannah worked on was derived from a painting by J.H. Penef, was a famous South African painter. We've actually got two pieces of, not original, obviously, <laughs> two pieces of his work on our wall, but if we had an original, we could buy a house with it. Um, but it's basically a, a, a deconstructed diagram of a tree that's made in several two-dimensional planes. It becomes a three-dimensional experience. And so it's porous in terms of being mesh steel of diff different densities. So it lets air and light through, but at a distance, it's sort of both visible and transparent. And it's beautiful the way it's weathered into the into its location. And so that would be an, ex an example of someone wanting something that, that would feel supernatural in terms of not so much the visual language of the baobab, but that they're so far from anywhere else. They can't see a light on the horizon at night. It's all stars. But they're also being served this Michelin star meal and the wine is the best that you can get and the, the linen is delightful and you know but and and so they're being really looked after very nicely but they're in this unique once in a lifetime experience that is really design driven whereas for Taludi um, I think authenticity probably would have been the driving factor so the clients loved Africa and safari and they had quite traditional ideas about it I think they was all sort of drawing back to the earlier safari days of Karen Blixen and out of Africa and, and sweeping canvas forms. And they kind of wanted a modernized version of that. A lot of buildings, lodges are built out of canvas because they're, it, for one thing, it's, it's easy to do. It's actually quite hard to do well, but it's, it's simple. It's lightweight. It can be done without cranes and big mechanical equipment. And you can create beautiful forms with it, but canvas is very limiting because of what you can and can't do. And then of course, thermally canvas is a real challenge because it, it shades, but it doesn't stop heat moving through, especially heat moving out. So it, it, you can keep coolish in canvas when it's hot, but you really can't stay warm in canvas when it's, when it's cold at night. And the Delta can get sort of one or two degrees above freezing in winter. It's very cold. It's quite high, quite high altitude. And so Formally, we really tried to play with what you can do with canvas. I think there was a strong emphasis on trying to not just look like every other camp. And the delta is so flat that we really experimented with height there. And so I really pushed to have a platform that was high up in the air. So we've got a library that you sort of ascend a series of stairs and ramps up to, and you eventually sort of, your feet are sort of six, seven meters above the ground. And you're up in the canopy of trees sort of among the birds. And you can just see forever because the delta is incredibly flat, which is what allows it to to flood in a trickle seasonally. And for example, the client wanted it to be fun and unusual. So I, I pitched in a meeting just to see, you know, to see how far we could push them to have a slide down from the top to the bottom. And then they pushed for this, they, they, they all jumped on board and said yes. And so there's this slide that goes from the top of the tree canopy down to, down to the bottom of the, the Delta floor. And um, it's quite fun. Now, every time I look on, on Instagram, I can see pictures of like old Americans in their full khaki with their binoculars going, we, Deborah, follow me. I'm going on safari. And then, <laughs> sorry, maybe you should cut that part out. Um, but photos of Americans going on safari and sliding down in their full khaki head to toe gear. 
and camo boots. I think the other thing with what is it like there and as the designer of the lodge is we also had to lead into almost the gimmickness of bringing the animals in, like you're on safari, you want to see as many animals as you can. So things like when we raise the platforms up which the canvas tents are built on, that provides deep shade. So hyenas love to sleep there. So you can be lying in your bed and a hyena will actually pop out from under the deck and you can see that and you can engage with it and feel like you're in this true wilderness and Buffalo love to rub their bums when they're wet on the post and then the whole structure shakes. Sure, shake. Well, we designed the pools specially to be, because they're often above ground, that an elephant will come up and drink out of the pool. And so when we're using, um, we don't really use chlorine pools, we use a special filtration that's not going to upset the elephant's so tummy. it's fresh water. So it's all fresh water. And it's how can we bring these animals in? Like we know where their natural walking paths are. Mm. We want to encourage that interaction. Like don't pat the elephants, but you can admire them from your deck. So there, yeah, there was a bridge at Kedra, mm. for example, that so elephants are almost four meters tall, the big, big ones. And so we made this bridge that was tall enough so that elephants could comfortably move underneath the bridge and you can walk over the bridge. And not so that you would deliberately sort of have an experience of walking over a herd of elephants, but so that they, they won't break the walkway and, and people can move around at night comfortably. But it, it also had to be wide enough that elephants, that the babies will follow their moms. And so they typically won't necessarily walk in a line. So you had to allow spaces for moms and babies to walk through the column grid. So the column grid is arranged around elephant widths and height in some sections. So it's a, it's a really fun thing to work around. There, I prefer those regulations to the regulations we do dealing, dealing, we deal with here uh, in houses sometimes. But at the same time, there's, um, there's some real challenges. Getting stuff there was very hard because um, it's all typically, for our projects, it had to come either from Johannesburg or Cape Town. And both of those are significant distance from Botswana. And then in addition to the distance, there's the, the quality of the roads. And so, so, yeah. So does that mean that what they were prefabricated or? For Kitra, a lot of it was prefabricated. So we went and checked all of the steel in Cape Town. Or it would also come, some of it would come from Europe. And so we'd have to have it prefabbed in Europe. So that's obviously much harder for us to go and inspect. But if it's made in Joburg or Cape Town, then, yeah, we would go and inspect it, sign off on it. So you'd often have a big prototype model. Then they would disassemble it, put it on a truck, and then get it up to site. So for any of those situations, you're driving it through South Africa. Then you've got a border crossing. And if you're crossing into Zimbabwe, like that's a whole specialty there. And then they've got to drive through Zimbabwe, get to the main city. Then they often have to take it off a big truck, put it on a little truck, and then drive it to site, which is often a sandy, dirty, bumpy road. Yeah, wow. And because you, you, you both were living in Cape Town, right? So you were working on these projects somewhat remotely, um, even though some of the, the stuff man, being manufactured was there. Did that slow you down or did it speed up the construction process? Or like what, what was the consequences of being so far away? It felt like we had to do everything at once. So we'd sort of start the week and be like, okay, this week we've got to get windows done, even though we're still putting foundations in the ground because we've got to get the prototype done in Cape Town for us to approve. So then that can get up there in time. So it just meant we were thinking about everything at once. You've kind of got to solve every problem in advance. So for Kitara, they actually built the entire building to scale one-to-one in a warehouse for the typical guest suite, which is a, is a big, it's probably 180 square meters, something like that, mm-hmm. 180 square meters plus big decks, um, single story, but very complex structure. They build the whole thing in a warehouse in Cape Town. 
and then dismantled it and then shipped it to Botswana. And so that they knew any problem that they would find, they wouldn't find the problem on site. They'd find the problem in a warehouse in Cape Town and then they could solve it there. Whereas for Tuludi and Impala Jenna, we knew upfront that we had limitations. And so, for example, both of those lodges, there's no glass at all. There's, there are some mirrors, but there's no glass in any windows. So they're all mesh and canvas roll down blinds. And so we just knew for Tuludi, uh, so for Kitura, the glass panes are small. So the windows are all broken up into smaller portions, which is normally what you wouldn't do when it's a place that's focused on view. But the only reason we did that is because big pieces of glass will break. So I've been to another lodge. They had big mirrors in the bathrooms and all of the mirrors are cracked and they're cracked for a whole year because they're all cracked on the way to site and to get new ones brought in is, is very time consuming. Mm-hmm. So Kedra, the class, the decision was made for the glass to be small and panelized and from Palagena and Tulidi, no glass at all. And you it just, was just packaged mm-hmm. unbelievably, but we worked on an 80% success rate on getting stuff there. So we knew that 20%. Only 80%. Yeah. So yeah. 20% would turn up broken, unusable, and you can't just go to Bunnings and get a new whatever. Yeah, it all sure. has to come back to Cape Town, be manufactured again, packaged, get over the border. And that border, that can take a day to cross, that can take a couple of weeks to cross. It really depended on the situation at the time. And you couldn't afford to get to site and have a problem. It had We had to have it solved or otherwise I'd have to fly with the extra screws in my handbag to site. And like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so explain who you were working with. Like obviously it wasn't you two building um, the, these lodges. And so what was the, did you, did, were all the people coming in at once to, to get this stuff built or? For Kitra, that was an amazing client who wanted to have a really strong, robust consulting team. So we had several engineers like hydraulic, structural, mechanical that all fly up with the architects together and would all spend a week on site. Then we'd all go back to Cape Town for a week. Then we'd all go back up to site. It was really fun. Week. It was so really, really fun. It was, you know, it's very sustainable flying an entire consultant team to a different country every fortnight. So we'd work with them. And then we also had quite a lot of specialist builders on site for Kidra. If they needed someone, they would fly them in. It was that sort of a budget. Whereas the other projects like Mapala Jenner and Taludi, it was a much smaller team. It was let's work with really good builders who can figure things out. Um, we actually didn't even have an, an engineer for Taludi because... Well, the, the builder the, had his in-house engineer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was nothing like the team that we had on Kidra. But Impala Jenner, we actually designed during COVID from Australia. And so because of the pandemic, we couldn't fly out there. And so we'd already done, this is the third project we'd done with the same client, same builder, same interior designer, who was very good at also not just interior design, but facilitating things on site. And so we did it all remotely and it actually worked out really well. We visited not that long ago and it's, it's been done really well. And I think that's because we had a really good understanding as a team and also, that, well, I think we all had enough mutual trust and respect for each other's abilities that we were happy, for example, to design all of the buildings, but then have them lay them out on site. So if they needed to sw- switch around or choose a different tree to base yourself around, that, that actually really wasn't a problem. And if they needed to space things slightly differently, that was fine. And at the same time, when we pushed back hard on certain things, they they also respected that, which I think took two or three projects to get to a point where we really all realized each other's skill set. And yeah, the builder for that project was was very good at making things work. And I think that's different to the builder for Kidra, who was 
was an exceptional builder, but he was very, very organized and systematic. And so you have different approaches, different outcomes, but both successful. Mm. Amazing. Taludi Lodge is a new lodge built in the Akabango Delta. It's a series of tree houses that are elevated on timber posts and connected by timber walkways. The buildings are all tensile canvas structures, both in the wall and the roof plane, as is the case for many lodges in Botswana. And um, like all lodges in the Akavanga Delta, it's a requirement that all the buildings can be removed and the site can be fully rehabilitated so that there was no sign that a camp had ever been there. And for this reason, we elevated buildings on timber posts so that their footprint was minimized and also to provide views because the delta is very, very, very flat. There were some beautiful trees on site, but they weren't quite enough to actually really cluster buildings in one location. And so they sort of strung along two arcs looking in all directions. We didn't use any concrete or structural steel, and we really relied on materials and construction techniques that were available regionally and were within the skill set of the available labor pool. We worked around existing elephant and hippo footpaths, and we didn't cut down a single tree and didn't disturb a single termite mound. And in the dry season, it's quite easy to see where animal movements are based. Uh, Animals tend to walk in, in lines, not straight lines, but they tend to walk one after each other, different species. And so it's pretty clear to see where elephants walk, where elephants cross. And so we actually had a walkway, for example, that starts to ramp up. And that's how you get into the treehouse without steps. So there we had a sand crossing for elephants so that they could walk across. They, they, would, they would break a timber bridge. And so they, they crossed over like a giant sand hump, for example. And every morning that was a, a place to go look for animal tracks because lots of animals would use those paths. And so you could see had a leopard been there, had a leopard and another leopard followed its tracks, had hippos been out. It was a, um, a little reading the morning newspaper every day. It was quite fun. Kidra is a truly remarkable project. It's located in the Okavanga Delta in Botswana. It is almost certainly the most expensive safari lodge in Africa, both in terms of construction and in terms of cost to stay as, as a guest. Unlike the other two projects being discussed, which have an informality to them, this was executed with military precision and had access to a large team of the best consultants available. This project was built by a South African who owns many hotels in Europe and America, but this was their very first safari lodge, so it was a big learning curve for everyone. At this particular lodge, it can take about 24 guests, so we had 12 guest rooms and one of them was a family room, even though no children are allowed. It also had a baobab sleep out, which you would get in a little like golf buggy almost and drive out to about half an hour from the lodge, lodge so you're in complete wilderness. It had a huge lap pool, spa facilities, an amazing gym, world-class Michelin star dining, incredible wine cellar. Basically, anything you wanted, you could get at Kidra. The site was unfenced, as with all safari projects, which meant you'd have constant run-ins with wildlife. At one point, we even had a pride of lions move into the building and all the builders had to run up the steel structure so they could hide from the lions until the lions woke up from their nap and decided to relocate. Run-ins like that were pretty regular on that job. So with this particular project, much of it had to be built in either Cape Town or Joburg or even Europe and then transported to site and that caused a lot of logistical challenges but we got there in the end. So Impala Jenna, the third lodge we're discussing, is in Zimbabwe. 
and it's uh, right on the northern edge of Zimbabwe on the Zambezi River, which is the border between Zimbabwe and Zambia. The Zambezi is a very broad, fast-flowing river. It's very close to Victoria Falls, which is a part of the attraction of staying there. It's in a wildlife uh, national park, but not quite of the quality in terms of its global appeal of the Okavango Delta. It is famous for its elephants and its hippos and its crocodiles and its water-based activities. There was a camp at Mpalajena, and that entire camp was demounted and taken to be reassembled in Kenya for use in a different project. The project for us, this was different in that we had a different set of skills to work with in terms of the local builders, and we had a different vernacular to work with. And the restrictions weren't quite as stringent in terms of what you can and can't use. So we could use masonry, we could use stone, which was available and was within the skill set of the builders who did really good stonework. And there was wonderful thatch. So there were very good thatchers who could do really playful things with thatch. I think rather than us trying to be over prescriptive, we really allowed on our notes in the drawings, we did some idea, gave some idea of what we wanted, but really just left the guys to do what they felt they could do being expressive with that. And it was better than we'd hoped. So that was really good. And that's really in a decorative use, not in a structural use. It's sort of, it's the fun part, not what holds up the building. There are seven rooms at Impala Jenna, but they're thinking of building two more. They're all elevated on timber decks and all of the public buildings are on timber decks, but the timber decks are just above the ground because it's not on a floodplain like the Delta. And it's really it was focused on basically barefoot luxury. That's what the client wanted. So you take your shoes off when you arrive and there's soft, there's soft beach sand in, the, in that part of Southern Africa. It's really nice to walk around. There's a lot of wildlife in the camp. There were monkeys, squirrels, bushbuck, all stealing the fruit off the table at breakfast. and there were beautiful trees to tuck under, small number of guests. Uh, really, It's a really relaxing experience to be there. But the, from a design point of view, I think the clients wanted something that was comfortable and contemporary and pushed the limits just a little bit. We always like to do something that's a bit playful. And so it was, it was really, really comfortable and luxurious and just a, a twist on, I guess, what would be a conventional luxury safari camp. And then bringing in a lot of layering. And to me, it had, I guess if, if it was an architect we modeled it on, it would be someone like Jeffrey Bauer. It was, a diff- it was different to other lodges. It was layered and really sort of broke the boundaries of inside and outside. But again, done with quite a limited construction budget and quite a small team. But it was a, it, in the end, it turned out really well. We visited last year and it's, I guess, a triumph for what local people could do with quite a limited drawing set, the really good builders. I want to talk a little bit about sustainability. Obviously, all three of your projects has some sort of focus on on sustainability. But how do you have that conversation with your client? You know, that, that word means so many different things to different people. I do think that most people think of sustainability as solar panels, basically. But I had a much more holistic view of it. So for me, it was where materials come from, how materials age, what happens to them when the lodge is taken apart, what can be reused. It was choosing materials that had no negative impact on the the site in the long term and really trying to do the most with the least for Impalogena and for Taludi, whereas for Kitara, it really was 
there was no limit to what we could do. It was just trying to be ethical within that constraint uh, or lack of constraint, shall we say. For the, the same client was for Taludi and Impala Jenna. And that client was, I think, had a, a good, strong, basic set of sustainability ethics. They wanted things to be right and to last and to be appropriate for place. But a lot of the, luckily working in these places, a lot of the sustainable, the big picture sustainability measures are are enforced by location. So you cannot plug into the mains connection to the grid because there isn't one. You have to deal with your sewage on site and make that water drinkable. You, you don't drink it, but you just, you just basically put it back into the water table through a sprinkler. And all of the waste is dealt with on site. The water is drawn from the water table and essentially returned clean to the water table. But materials-wise, for Kidra, I think there was, I would have said there's a, there's a pretty high embodied energy for that. For the other two, the materials are really local. Thatch is incredibly low impact and it's very good thermally. Canvas is a challenge to work with thermally, but it is a very low impact material in terms of the embodied energy in it. But I think something to be aware of is that these camps all tend to have a fairly short lifespan, but they tend to get... Um, the concession, in other words, how long the, the lodge has the right to be there is normally in the 20, like 20, 27 years, something like that. But often they tend to get pulled down and uh, a fancier, more expensive lodge is built in its place just because the market is so competitive for lodges. But that's not then just thrown in a hole in the ground or burnt. That's actually turned into something, even if it becomes a staff village, which is what did happen for one of the projects. The, mm. the lodge became the staff village and they built a new lodge. So I don't know if, Hannah, if you've got a view as an Australian on that. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing about it's such a brutal environment there that when you get to the end of that 20 years, some of the materials just haven't lasted. And for you to have canvas in that hot, hot, hot sun and the dry weather, it's just going to deteriorate. So we were lucky at Kidra that they were happy to invest in the best quality materials, even though they did come from overseas. But we spent more money up front so that we weren't going to have to be replacing these materials in five years. We had all these decked walkways everywhere. And for that, we used Gorapa timber. And there was a bit of a fight to use that sort of timber because they wanted to use a local timber. But we all knew that if we did that, we'd be back there in 18 months, ripping it all up, replacing it. So let's get, because it was all FSC timber mm. and it had low embodied energy because it came on a ship, not a plane. And then it was so, still from Peru. Still from so Peru. It, this is, these are the things <laughs> we try to work out. It has a longer how, lifespan. Yeah. How, how do you balance these things out? And, you know, it costs more, but the client was willing to do that because they knew they're not replacing things. So in that sense, we've been lucky that the client has got it. And anytime they haven't got it, all you have to do is take the client to the site and you show it to them and they, they do get it quite quickly and they understand where that extra money is going. Can you tell? Can you give us an example of that, like of how you've brought, like you've walked your client through through making these decisions? Like, what what, what do you say to them? It was quite tricky on Kidra because we actually didn't deal with the client. We had a client's representative, and he was an ultra city boy and just couldn't understand why anybody would want to be out there in the first. Place. He wanted very large televisions in every room, <laughs> in every room, which... and everything that had to be air conditioned. So getting him to understand but whether or not he really cared about the sustainability, but he cared about the dollar figure and he cared if they are going to be coming back and replacing. So when we'd say to him, if we use this material over this, yes, it's more expensive, but think about the longevity. You're not going to get a phone call from a guest saying there's a hole in my roof, a snake has gotten in. 
And that's at the end of the day, that's what matters. What? Because we have a lot of very high paying guests. They don't want to see scrappy looking lodges. They want to see beautiful lodges. Yeah. From a price point from sustainability as well, the two Kitara and Tuluti were kind of opposite approaches. Tuluti, much lower embodied energy, but um, much less comfortable thermally because it's when it's hot, it's hot inside the tent. And when it's cold, it's cold inside the tent. And whereas Kitara was designed so that when it's 50, literally 50 degrees in the sun outside, it can be 16 degrees inside. And that's what the client wanted, but which, which I think all of us felt a bit uncomfortable about. But that being said, all of the power is from the sun. Mm. So it, the, and then the, the glazing was very, very good quality glazing and the frames were very good quality frames. So they, we did everything we could to deliver the client's brief in a way that was efficient and unwasteful. Mm. Uh, the insulation was extremely good in Tuluti and the construction, the construction was very good. But ultimately, the a big part of it is just w- what the client wants and sometimes trying to sneak it in, sustainability measures, and then sometimes also just making the argument that that longevity is it, which sometimes they... Mm you know, they made for themselves that longevity is a big part of sustainability. So buy the better thing and then buy it fewer times. Yeah. And things like how he asked to have 16 degree air conditioned rooms in the middle of Africa in the middle of summer where it's 40 plus degrees. To do that, we had to have a very good mechanical engineer on board. We then had to have the solar plant and we had to have a like state of the art battery system. And you say to the client, look, if you want all these things, it is going to cost more. So where's the give and take? And he was more than happy to have this phenomenal solar farm with, at the time, they were the best batteries that you could get. They were specially designed by Tesla. Yeah, they, I mean, they weren't custom for the project. They were just Tesla power walls. Yeah. But that was a very big system. It's a, and that's a really big deal to get that technology in Africa. And so he had it all there and they were willing to do it, but it meant that the, you could now sit in a 16 degree room and know you're not chugging through power and coal. <laughs> Amazing. So it sounds like from what you've been saying, like there's varying ways that you actually measure success and sustainability. Like, uh, um, I mean, would you say that you, like you, Craig, you said you tried to sneak things in, like, obviously you, you had an agenda on what, what you think, sustainability is like was can you explain about that a little bit more there's certain things that i think we feel uncomfortable with and i think there's certain things that we feel comfortable with in terms of what's done in the bush and i think for example you could do things under the ground that we very hard to ever prove but for kittery we really just made sure that the footings were we're working with the engineer the footings were what what the government required and if possible they were better. So you can bury a block of concrete in the ground. No one will ever know. You can probably pour oil into the ground and people will only find out years later, maybe when you've decommissioned the site. But I think you just design around making sure that everything is done really properly. And when it comes to materials, I think I, with the client that we've done a few lodges for, I'm really hoping we'll do another project for him. And we really just, I think now we push for thatch roof construction not canvas because canvas is it is um it's pretty and it's not very expensive but uh, it's really limited thermally and so now i think after a couple of lodges we hopefully the client is on board with the idea that 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 is a wonderful material for roof and roofing in in that it's so warm when it's cold it's so cool when it's hot 
and it's made from grass and it's used by local guys who literally don't, you know, don't even need machines to, to work with thatch. And it keeps a skill set alive that is mostly dying because in areas around the lodges in the local communities, roofs were all made of thatch previously and then metal sheeting arrived. And a lot of people wanted a metal sheeting roof because it was seen as progress, but actually it's resulted in much worse outcomes. Very hot when it's hot outside, very cold when it's cold outside, very poor air quality because thatch does breathe. And so I think I'm a huge fan of thatch and I'm glad, you know, South Africa does and Southern Africa has a strong thatching skill set. But it's, I think we push for that, for example, but for Kidger, it's really a different question. I think that was, mm-hmm. they wanted the best of the best. They wanted something that had never been seen before. And then it's a question of how to give them that while uh, doing something that is right for place. Now, Hannah, you were talking about uh, the animals. Um, mm-hmm. so, like, I want to hear some more anecdotes, like, but I also really want to understand you're talking about like the, the animal parts, um, like, do you, do you, like when you're designing something, do you, are you actually just sitting there watching the animals for a day or like, what, what, what does that look like? like <laughs> well, as the Australian, I would be having like a meeting and then I'd see elephants and I, I still lose my mind when I see them. <laughs> unbelievable and everyone also keep talking like it's normal normal I'm like oh my god there's an elephant so they were definitely part of your everyday life going out and seeing what was there we were really lucky that the client respected the animals you've got to remember that the animals come first and a lot of builders I think building here in Australia like if you had say a flock of birds come onto your site and they're impacting the program those birds would just be removed or you just build over them. Whereas over there, we had a leopard have her cubs in an air conditioning vent and we actually stopped works in that area. No one was allowed there until well, I think it was she'd wildlife or until she'd moved her cubs, until it was deemed appropriate to return to that area. And that was weeks. We had other days when we had a bit of a, a naughty elephant come in and we just wouldn't go over there. So there's a real respect that the animals take priority. The program can change. There's 300 builders on site. If the lions decide they want to sleep under guest room number two for the next three weeks, they're going to sleep there. And we're going to just move all the way down the other end of the site to guest room number 12. And then it was a big learning curve for me. Like, So Craig's a ex-safari ranger. So I'd been to the bush a few times, but I don't have any of the knowledge that he has. So it's probably a little bit of ignorance is bliss when I would just charge off into the savannah, just walking out there by myself, hoping don't get eaten. But Craig was really good at showing me the different animal tracks to look for. So like when you see branches bent down in a particular way, you know, okay, we've had elephants walk through here. I can identify a lot of different kinds of poos from different animals. <laughs> and so, has there been a carnivore here? Is that a recent, you know, leopard poo? Should I get out of here quite quickly? Or is this just impala paths and different sorts of animals like that? So I found it quite interesting how quickly I got to learn some of those animal patterns when it was unusual to see animals, when I was like, I'd get to sight, you know, in a certain time of year and be like, I should be seeing 100 elephants a day. That was always pretty exciting. And I don't think it ever wore off for the Australian who'd never seen anything like that before. And I definitely became an expert in baboon design as well. Mm. Baboon design? Baboons. So do, what, what, we'll ruin everything. What, what is it? What is baboon design? They're a hazard. They're a, hazard. They're a giant hazard. Oh, we had um, 
know, just one quick example. So we had, this is at Kidra, we had these unbelievable, amazing custom canvas roofs built. They came from Italy. They took months to get the cost of Steel that bends in every direction. It's just beautiful. They're just, it, it was a sculpture and they'd been installed for, I don't know, 48 hours. <laughs> And a baboon found a tin of um, black sealer. Black sealer, yeah, for the timber deck. And the whole troop grabbed the bucket, went up to this brand new canvas roof, flicked it all around, and did some paintings. There's all these handprints everywhere. They had the time of their lives. Then they went inside. And we just had all the wallpaper put inside and they put their handprints everywhere. You can see they were having the best time. But for us, we're like, oh, my God, what do we do? We've waited months and months for all this stuff to come in. They've ruined it in the matter of like an hour. What do we do? So we were able to clean up what we could. And then there's still some little remnants. Every time I'd walk past and see it, I'd have a little giggle. But then we... Uh, you know, you could either rip up the entire deck that they ruined or we could try and um, sand back what we could. And then you just tell clients, well, this is where the baboons had their party and the clients really liked hearing that story instead of just (laughs) rebuilding it. I mean, this is amazing, guys. And obviously um, you're both back in Australia now practicing. Can you just tell me a little bit about Heyman Charlton as a practice on the Gold Coast? Uh, Heyman Charlton started during the pandemic. We were the last commercial flight that was led into Australia before they shut the gates. And we were sitting here, two unemployed architects. And so our business sort of started with that when everyone was deciding to put in a new kitchen and a new bathroom because they were suddenly spending so much time in their house and realised they needed a bigger house if they were going to continue living with their partners and children. Yeah, so we just sort of grew out of that. And we've been working on some high-end housing down on the Gold Coast. Um, There's a big building boom down here at the moment. So I think we we opened our doors at the right time. Yeah, we're quite lucky that um, uh, a client reached out who's a New Zealander but has lived in South Africa for a long time. And he um, he's doing two projects there. One is a community conservation camp called Koru, and we're doing that. That's at Intender at the moment. So we did a site visit end of last year, and that's in a private part of the Kruger National Park. And they're building a camp there for the community that lives outside of the Kruger National Park often doesn't get to visit because either they don't have the opportunity, they can't afford it. And so this is to give groups, a lot of it is groups of younger children and then groups of like old ladies, the gogos, they especially, and they bring to Kruger to try and you know do something nice for the community who often don't get much out of living next to this fantastic world resource and then also um trying to work against poaching so rhino poaching is a really big problem in south africa and by educating people on the value of nature there's a hope that uh, poaching will be lessened and that's a really cool project it's been it's, a, it's been very successful at the moment but they don't have buildings so we've designed buildings for them so that's sleeping quarters dining quarters education spaces and that's that'll we're hoping they'll start construction pretty soon. That's in tender at the moment. Mm-hmm. And then we were doing a, a house for the client privately for him and, and his partner and kids. But they've hit pause for six months to travel around Africa. So we hopefully that'll get done. It, it, it's a really cool design, but let's see if it gets done. But they they own the land and they've got um, good intentions. So he's a really ethical, really nice person. So we're hoping that happens. And then I would love to do this kind of work in Australia. We don't quite know whose door to knock on at the moment, but um, I think we'd love to do the equivalent. I don't think it would necessarily be tented camps in the wilderness here, but it could be something where you have a really strong connection to nature and a really low impact 
It could be ecotourism focused or it could be something different, but I'd love to do that. But at the moment, we're basically working on, on, houses, on houses, renovation and, uh, and new build. Trying to teach the Gold Coast sustainability. Mm. Which is, how's that going? <laughs> oh, it's tricky. It it's, is tricky. It's, a, um, it's been a bit of a culture shock coming here, actually. Mm-hmm. But that being said, we are working on some cool stuff and we've met some cool people. So we don't mean to bash the Gold Coast at all. But okay. architecturally, we went to the Institute Awards last weekend, last Saturday. And it was interesting just to be around the community here and to, to realize that there's, there's quite a lot of architects here. We just don't meet each other. So, yeah, if you want to be friends with us and you live on the Gold Coast, find us on the internet. <laughs> oh, thanks for sharing today, guys. This is definitely a type of design, type of building that like we don't hear much about. So, so thank you for sharing. And thanks to the team at Hearing Architecture as well. Um, this has been a great conversation. And I think, yeah, I hope you, the listeners, have enjoyed it. If you want to know more about Hannah and Craig's practice, Heyman Charlton, they're at heymancharlton.com and at Heyman Charlton Architects on Instagram. My name's Sam Bosted. Thanks for listening. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our host, Sam Bosted, and our guest architects, Craig Heyman and Hannah Charlton from Heyman Charlton Architects. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about designing in wild Africa. We can't wait to see more of your projects in the future. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Sam Bosted and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.